Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. How are you good? Good morning, everyone. How are you well? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, let me welcome you maybe for the fifth time already this morning, but my name is Jeff and I'm one of the leaders here at the church and I extend a, a, a welcome in the name of Jesus Christ to you. You are welcome here. And um, if you're visiting here, um, I've never said those words before. I welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ. So the fact that I just did that is throwing me off a little bit, but it feels right to do. You are welcome. And you are welcome not because of who you are or what you've done or not done. You are welcome because of Jesus and what he has done. That you are welcome to come and join us as we gather together and worship him and minister to him. How many of us come to church, and you don't have to raise your hand, this is not an official poll. We'll be emailing those out later this week, but this is just for me to know. But how many of us on our way to church are considering ministering to God when we come? Or how many are, are rather thinking, man, I really need a word from the Lord today. Or man, my week really sucked. Like I could use like something from the Lord. And, like we come to, to church needy a little bit and we're hoping that God would use his people, maybe the worship, maybe the, the, the teaching or whatever to, to minister to us. But how many of us come to this place desiring to minister to the Lord? I'm not trying to bring shame or even condemnation because I want you to know I, I struggle with that too. And I was reminded this last week that the early church, that many times when they would gather together for worship, that their primary motivation was to minister to God, not because he's in need of anything. Say amen. He doesn't need anything from us. God is not a God who is in any lack or has any need, but he is deserving and, and worthy of our worship. And so when we come to minister to him, what we're doing is we're giving him the accolades, the praise, the hand claps, the reverent standing and bowing before him because he's worthy of such worship. I remember in um, theology class many, many, many years ago now, um, I learned something that I'll share with you. And this is completely off of my notes. You know what? For the record, we might not even talk about this stuff over here if that's okay with you. But I remember my instructor of this theology class um, reminded me that, that there are a whole host of created beings outside of humanity. So when you go back to Genesis one and two, you see that God created everything that exists, right? And he did the birds and the fish and the mountains and the skies and the, all the things, and he created mankind. But do you know the Bible also talks about spiritual beings like angels, etc. Okay, we don't really have the creation narrative for them, but we know that God created them. And we also know that angels don't get to um, 
experience salvation the way humanity does. So all that to say this, that when a person comes to the realization by the Holy Spirit drawing them in, when a person comes to the realization that they're a sinful person and God loves them and wants to save them through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, sending Jesus Christ to the cross to die for them, to be raised from the dead as we celebrated today, all of that, when a person receives that and accepts salvation, the free gift of salvation, the angels lose their minds in heaven because they have no reference for this because they're with him all the time. They know what he's like, but for a person like you and I to, to reach into this thing called faith and to believe in something that seems so foreign to the world around us, that when we believe and we trust and we move in faith and in hope that the, the spiritual beings, these angels, they go, are you seeing this? Look how they devote an hour, an hour, like a week, every week to come and to give glory to God the Father. Look how they do this. And the angels are like, oh my goodness. Are you sensing what I'm trying to say here? Is that we get an opportunity to give God what is due him and watch heaven just be blown away by our adoration and our worship. So today we finish uh, the third week of a series that we've called Spiritual Practices. And, and this particular spiritual practice, we've been talking about worship, which is maybe why I'm talking about all of this off of notes, because it's sort of been in my craw, so to speak, right? Just been thinking about this worship. There are many spiritual practices that a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a disciple, whatever language you like to use, there are many spiritual practices that I would encourage you to participate in, to grow in your faith and in your understanding of who God is. And so throughout the coming years, right, we're going to take some time out of our Bible study and we're going to do these little series on spiritual practices. One of them coming up is going to be like on Bible um, study and or Bible memorization. How many people think Bible study is important? Right? All your hands should go up. The answer is yes to that. Yes. <laughs> I will help you. I'll give you the answers. <laughs> right? Right? Of course. And we've done a spiritual practice on prayer, but this one is on worship. And we're closing today. Week one, TJ actually talked about what worship is. Last week, I talked a little bit about using the Bible as a reference point of embodied worship or what it means to worship, not just with the immaterial things of our, our person, like our spirit and our our. our um, our soul or our mind, but to actually worship with our bodies. And I was so encouraged to hear many of you clapping while the band was playing. That's, that's an embodied act of worship. We don't force you to clap, but you can if you want to. We won't force anyone to dance. You're welcome, but you can if you want to, right? You can embody worship and your praise to the Lord. So, and then this week, I want to talk about probably the most important aspect of worship. We're going to be in John chapter four, and this is probably the most important passage in all of the New Testament about this idea of worship. And it's talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so that's where we're headed today. I want you to know a couple things as we get started. That in John's gospel, we're in John chapter four. Let me find my page here. John chapter four, John writes a biography about Jesus. We call it John's gospel. Um, the Greek word that is translated as worship in his gospel, he uses 13 times in the entirety of his gospel. So in all the chapters of John's gospel, he uses this word for worship 13 times. 10 of them are in these five verses that we're going to read today. And so I say it's an important passage for us because of the repetition in it. 
In, in their days, they had no highlighters, no way to underline the passage, so they would just repeat things over and over again. Husbands, look at me. When, when your wife repeats something to you over and over again, it's something important to her, yes? You had an opportunity, bro. You whiffed. You swing and a miss. The answer is yes to that. Yeah, so repetition means it's important. It means it's important. And so John is telling us, and uh, that this is important. And lastly, uh, these are actually the words of Jesus. Jesus is having a conversation with a woman, a, a woman from Samaria. She's called the Samaritan woman. And she's at this well. And Jesus has this encounter with her. There's a whole lot of conversation happening there. But we're going to just delve into this one aspect of their conversation, this idea of worship together. So I want to read chapter Four verses 20 through 24 together. The words will be on the screen behind me. You can follow along. Let's read this together. It says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. This is the woman from Samaria. And she's saying to this, to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem, that is the place where people ought to worship. So there's some conflict on what worship is supposed to be and what it looks like. Verse 21, Jesus says to her, well, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, that you will worship what you, you worship rather what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's a whole other message at another time. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father, and here's the line, in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people. I don't know if you underline things in your brain, but that'd be something I would underline. That God the Father is seeking, that he is looking for people to worship him. And so we have that opportunity every week when we gather here. Um, you have opportunities every day of every week to worship God however you want. But at at least at Sunday at 10 o'clock, we do it together. Last verse, God is spirit, John says, Jesus says rather, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Whew, there it is. Let's pray together. God, open our eyes and our, our ears so we can see and we can hear what you're saying. Lord, help us to understand this. We want to be people who are um, sought by you, but we want to be people who respond in good worship towards you as well. So we thank you, Lord, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So worship is a, um, an interesting thing. And the, the Samaritan woman here, she's asking Jesus about the correct way for worship. And I think that's an important question to have in our lives. What is the correct way to worship? And there seems to be some um, disagreement from her people, the Samaritans, and the Jewish people on, on where real worship is supposed to take place. But for us to understand what that really means, we have to go way back in their story to get, sort of, get a sort of a reference point or a context for this story. So um, I'm gonna, you guys stay in John chapter four. I'm gonna move all the way back into the Old Testament book of Exodus, okay? And the next few moments are gonna be very teacher-like, like a lecture, right? So feel free to nod off for the next 10 minutes or so. That's completely fine. I have no problem with that. It's gonna, if, you're, if, you're, if you like the lecture, right, you're going to lean in now. This is the part where I lean in because I love this. But it's going to be very sort of just a, like a, a teaching moment here. In Exodus chapter 19, the book of Exodus just means exit, right? That's what it means. And so it's, it's the story of God's people leaving Egypt and going into 
Canaan, the promised land. So you'll remember God's people, all the descendants of Abraham. Abraham was given the promise by God that says, I'm going to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. What does that even mean? It just means this, that there's a place that God has for his people that provides all sustenance and nourishment and goodness for them. And it's this promised land that Abraham and his descendants are supposed to live forever. Unfortunately, a famine breaks out at some point in their history and they migrate, immigrate down into North Africa into a place called Egypt to survive this famine. And they seem to thrive down in Egypt for a generation or two or three. But all of a sudden, the Egyptians begin to enslave God's people. They're, they're scared of them. For they, they fear that they're going to become too numerous and overthrow the Egyptians, so they enslave them. And so for 430 years, God's people lived in slavery in Egypt. And they begin to cry out to God, would you, would you help us? Would you deliver us? And so God hears their prayer, the Bible tells us, and sends a deliverer whose name is Moses to rescue them. God rescues them through Moses. They leave Egypt. They're marching their way into the land of milk and honey, walking through the desert, and they encamp next to a mountain called Sinai. That's ah, a lot. And God invites Moses up the mountain, says, come up here, bro. I got something I want to tell you. And Moses goes up and God says these words to him. And this is paraphrased. This is just how I see it. God says this, everything belongs to me. All of it is mine. I can have anything I want on the earth. And I want you, I want you people. So go down Moses and tell these people that I want them and that I will be their God if they will be my people. It's an invitation into, this sounds weird, marriage, if you will. That God loves them and wants them. And so Moses goes down the mountain and says, God wants you, do you want him back? And all the people go, woohoo, yes, we want him. And God says, okay, prepare yourselves for in three days, I'm coming to meet with you. And do people get ready? I don't know, they put on their makeup, they do their hair. I don't know what you do to get ready for the Lord. <laughs> These are the jokes, help me out a little bit. Yes, they eat, they don't eat, I don't know. They get ready. And on the third day, it says that the mountain began to shake. That Sinai itself, not the, round, the, the, the land around it, the mountain began to shake as if God himself and the very weightiness of his presence began to cause the, the pylons or the, the structure underneath the mountain to give way. And God descends onto this mountain and it says fire and lightning and smoke was breaking forth from this mountain, all, all symbols of God's presence. And then out of heaven, this trumpet blast, like a jazz show. I have no idea what this is. And it's, and it's this trumpet blast keeps getting louder and louder and louder. And the people are called towards God. And in that moment, they changed their mind. And Deuteronomy chapter five tells us the same story from a different vantage point and gives us other details that Exodus 19 doesn't give us. Deuteronomy chapter five, it tells us this, that the people did not go up the mountain to meet with God because they were afraid of him. The God of the universe, the creator of everything was inviting them into relationship and they decided not to go because they were afraid. Now just pause for a moment and think what a, a mistake that was, yes? But before we're too quick to judge, look around you. 
How many people do we all know who have an invitation into the good, loving graces of God, the creator of everything through Jesus Christ and choose not to follow him because of their fear of him? They say things like this. Well, well, I don't want to give up this in my life. Like, I don't mind believing in God, but I don't want my life to change for it. And for whatever reason, they make this decision not to fully envelop and give themselves to God um, wholeheartedly. And so before we judge them, may I remind you that you and I are oftentimes those people too. Preach somebody. Preach somebody. God, you can have this piece of my life. You can have this part of my life. But you, you know this is my part. And honestly, God's interested in all things. And maybe more importantly, he's interested in your desire to let go of the thing that you refuse to let go of. Maybe that's the thing that he actually wants. So the people say no, they do not go up the mountain. Moses ascends the mountain one more time. And at the top of this mountain, God gives Moses the plans for this thing called the tabernacle. If you read the Old Testament, we hear oftentimes about the tabernacle. The tabernacle just means tent. There's like this this mobile tent thing that, that God has given Moses plans for. It's a big thing. Don't think pup tent like Boy Scouts, but think really big tent. And, and the people of God make this tabernacle, this tent, and they dedicate it to the Lord. And God's presence comes to the tent. It comes to the temple. And it says that there was smoke in the tent or around the tabernacle. And that's a picture of God's presence. And they would be instructed to pick up the tent, to pack it up, to carry it a couple hundred miles down the desert and reestablish it. And God's presence would come back and they would know God is there because there would always be this pillar of smoke coming from this tent. And they used this tabernacle, this place in the tent where God's presence would be with his people for over 400 years. Eventually, there's a king in Egypt. This is a real long story. I apologize. So David, you know his name. David becomes king in, in, in um, Israel, sorry. And he brings all 12 tribes together, creates one nation. He desires to build a house for God because they still got this broken down temple or tabernacle thing. And, and eventually, David's son Solomon builds a house for God and we call it the temple. And the temple is in Jerusalem on a mountain called Zion. And this temple is where God's presence is. In fact, here's an interesting fact. When they dedicated the temple to God after it had been constructed, it said that an earthquake came. And it said that, that smoke and fire fell on the temple. And it said that smoke was so great that the priests couldn't even minister to God because the smoke was so heavy. Now, if you're a Jewish person and you're experiencing this, what are you thinking of immediately? You're thinking of the mountain called Sinai where God's presence dropped some 800 years before. And in Jerusalem at the temple, now God's presence has showed up. And we're like, yay, God is with us again. And this is all of that to say this one thing. God is seeking his people. God is desiring his people to worship him. We just read about that in John chapter four. He wants his people. God is a God who wants to be with his people. Can I say that again for you? God is a God who wants to be with his people. He came to the tabernacle and would stay with them. He came to the temple and would stay with them. And we can fast forward through the history of Israel. We know that Israel, at some point, because of their disobedience, the, the kingdom broke in half. 
two kingdoms now. We have a northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah, two different kings, both sons of Solomon fighting over the right to rule this whole kingdom. Eventually, because of their disobedience, God allows two neighboring nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to overtake them and destroy their lands. In 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and ransack um, Israel and take all those people and pull them off into captivity, leaving some of them behind. And in 586 BC, the southern kingdom Judah falls to the Babylonians and they are pulled away into captivity as well. And the, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. Some of the people that were left behind in the northern kingdom, um, some of the Jewish people intermarried with other Gentile and pagan groups that moved into this area. And those people became, wait for it, the Samaritans. So these sort of half-breed, half-Jewish, half-pagan, sort of mixed religion type of people became the Samaritans and lived in this area in the promised land, right? And then eventually, if you know the story of Nehemiah, et cetera, they come back into Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, and the Jewish people come back to the southern kingdom, and the Samaritans are kind of up to the north, and then these two people groups just do not get along. Is this all making sense? This is a real, I'm sorry, it sounds like a history lesson at this point. Well, you have to get this because Jesus is having an encounter with the Samaritan woman. And they're having a conversation about a lot of things in her life. I won't bore you with all the details. You can read it in John chapter four. It's like he gets in her business, like about her life stuff, right? But he, that's not what we're talking about today. He gets in her business. But in, and then to change the subject almost, she goes, but where should we worship Jesus? Like I can tell you're a prophet, where should you worship? That's the question that we, were just, that we just saw in John chapter four. Because our, our fathers say we're supposed to worship on this mountain in Samaria. And there's a mountain called Gerizim. And that's where they place another temple. And that's where they worship their God, right? Their mixed religion God. And there's another temple down in Zion, right? In Jerusalem that, that the Jewish people worship their God. And she wants to know what's the correct way to worship. Think about this for a moment. Isn't this a good question for us to be asking? <laughs> Isn't this a good question for us to be asking? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to look over here now. Um, the, the answer is yes. We, we, we want to be people who desire to worship God correctly. And you're like, is there a wrong way to do it? I think there is. I think there is. And I think Jesus points to it. And he says the true worshipers, he says in this passage, are those who worship God, who is spirit, in spirit and in truth. So if you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth, then you are in fact not worshiping him correctly. Well, great, Jeff. Well, then just tell us what worshiping in spirit and truth is. Well, therein lies the rub. I don't know. <laughs> like I kind of like, I studied it this week. I'm learning it. I gotta be honest with you. Can we just be, can we have real talk for a moment? Just because I stand up here every week doesn't make me the expert on all things. A much bigger amen was heard in my mind. Say amen. amen. Yes, I am not the expert in all things Bible and Jesus and God. So for, for, for the record, I have also been wrestling with this passage. What does it mean, God, for me to worship you in spirit and in truth? What does it mean for you to worship in spirit and in truth? Because that is the true worship that God wants. Well, I have a couple ideas. I'll share them with you henceforth. Know this, that we are people who have the spirit of God indwelling in us. 
Let's consider a couple passages here. Uh, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is the Apostle Paul writing to believers, Christians. He's writing to them, and he's telling them something about their, their makeup now, what they're like. And he says this in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That the Spirit of God, Paul tells us, when you become a believer, that the very the same spirit, I need you to picture this, the same spirit that came down on the mountain in Sinai, that dwelled in the tabernacle with his people and in the temple, that same spirit of God now indwells inside of us. It seems like so bizarre, like almost like our bodies can't contain the magnitude of who he is, but I promise you he's figured out how to make it work that the spirit of God indwells inside of us. Look at another passage that the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse nine. He says this, that you are not in the flesh, but you are in what? You are in the spirit. In fact, he says, the spirit of God dwells in you and anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you do not have the spirit of God in you, you do not belong to God. And that is hundred percent true and accurate. We believe that completely. So if we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we have to understand that the spirit of God is going to direct what this looks like for us. It has to be spirit led. And I think, I think and, and you could read the commentaries on this and you could do your own studies, but I think there are some, there's a partnership that exists between the, the capital S spirit of God, right? Dwelling inside of us and our spirit cooperating, lower S spirit, cooperating together to give God his glory and his praise and his honor. It's almost to say, this is not an automatic thing. Like you have to choose to do so. So this is why we're teaching on worship because you want, you need to learn how to do this and you need to choose to worship. Okay. This is not something like, <laughs> I just had a weird joke in my head. I'm not going to say it because it doesn't seem appropriate at this point. But uh, I almost said it again. I'm not going to say it. I'm picturing my wife sitting right here, shaking her head, saying, I will divorce you if you say this joke. So I'm not going to say it. But it doesn't, it doesn't just happen. It's, it's a choice that we make. And the Spirit of God draws us into that. Now, um, I'll share a quick story, but I, I, I oftentimes feel moved by God, and I'm assuming it's the Spirit of God inside of me, outside of places that are not churches. Does anyone ever feel the presence of God outside of a church building? Well, let's start here. Do you ever feel the presence of God in the church building? Please say yes. Oh my God, I hope so. Yes, I hope so. But do you ever feel his presence somewhere else? Yes, I, I feel it oftentimes at gas stations, which is so strange. My mind goes 100 miles an hour all the time. ADD is probably what I'd be diagnosed with. So when I'm pumping gas, my mind gets to run. And I swear to you, in those moments, God reminds me of people I should be praying for. In those moments, I call people on the phone and say, hey, I've been thinking about you. Hi, Jim, been thinking about you. In those moments, I, I call people, I, I text people, I just, all right. So I'm saying that the spirit of God inside of me is doing something in my spirit to make me move to do something. Okay, so I think spiritual worship, worship in spirit and in truth has to be motivated by the spirit of God, um, uh, working together with our spirits to do something. And then it says that we're supposed to do so in the truth, which means that there's, there's a false way to worship God. And, and to understand the truth of who God is, is, is a is a predicate, if you will, to, to, to being able to worship him, which is why we, we teach Bible study every week here at the church, because you need to know more about who God is so that you can worship him truthfully. 
Is this making sense? Right? We're not hearing. I love emotional worship. Say amen. I love it. I'm, I don't know who that was. That's real loud and awesome. But I love emotional worship. But this worship, the spirit and truth worship moves beyond just emotional worship. There's an intellectual side. We have to engage our brains and we have to know the truth and worship him in the truth. Let me give you a couple truths that might be helpful to us. Worship must be rooted and tethered to the realities of biblical revelation. Um, Sam's, Dr. Sam Storms has got a, a great book on, on this stuff, and I'm just quoting some things for him. Um, if you have any questions or want to know more about this book, just text me later, and I'll, I'll send you the name. But he says, uh, I'll send you the book name. But he says that there are a number of truths that we need to uh, be encouraged in. It's, it's worship is not uh, meant to be, wait for this one, it's not meant to be formed by what feels good. <laughs> That our worship moves beyond what just feels good, but is in fact moved by the light of what is true for us. Like if you, can you imagine if we only worshiped God when we felt like it? Oh my gosh, that's what we do anyways. Think about it. Like worship has to be motivated by something other than our emotions and our feelings. Say amen and I'll move on. It has to be, it has to be. There, there's a God who created everything and is desperate to be with you. Desperate to be with you. Maybe desperate's the wrong word, but desirous to be with you. And your choice is to respond or not. It's up to you. So we worship in spirit and in truth. That our worship to be true must be doctrinally grounded and focused on the truth, what we know about God. And any worship, and this is important, that is inconsistent with what is revealed in scripture can ultimately degenerate into idolatry. That we can begin to worship something that is not the true God. So we need the Bible to encourage and to teach us on ways to worship. I was praying um, this morning. I, I, on Sundays when I preach, I oftentimes wake early and I go for um, like a run on the treadmill in my garage. And I do so just to clear my mind. And I kind of run through my notes in my mind. Like, okay, Jeff, make sure you say this. Make sure you say this. Make sure you say this. And if I could be very honest with you, um, last night and leading into today, there just seemed to be this like missing part of my message that I just couldn't put together. I want you to know I've, I've prepped this for hours. I've studied, I've read more on this subject than I'd ever want to read again for a while. You know what I'm talking about? Like I've done the work, but I felt like there was something missing. Normally, look at me, normally I'd be freaking out. I'd be freaking out because Jeff, you, in six hours, you got to get up and preach, bro. Like you got to have something to say, but I wasn't. I wasn't because I felt like God is going to say something that he, that he wanted to say anyways. And so I want to pause just for a moment. I want to ask you a question. What is the, what is the thing or two that you hold back from the Lord? What is the thing or two that you sense sometimes the Lord wanting you to give up or to you know, move through or offer to him? Maybe it's this, um, this idea that your whole hope of your life hinges on the fact of whether or not you find a mate in life. Like, I don't wanna be single, say amen. 
I don't want to be single. God, give me someone I can love and marry and whatever. Maybe there's something. You're just holding on to that. And God's, I'm not saying he's not going to give that to you, but for whatever reason, like that's a stopping block for you because for you to say God is good means to imply that your singleness is also good and you disagree with God. Maybe it's the issue of anxiety. I'm a person who struggles with anxiety. I say struggle. I kind of enjoy it some days. I don't know, but it's... It gets me out of bed in the morning. I don't know. But, you know, there are things, and I, 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 I struggle to go to God and say, I believe your promises. I believe all the things you say to be true. I believe all of that. But why am I still struggling with this one thing? And that becomes a barrier of sorts. And so my experience in life is driving now my worship towards him instead of the truth about him. You, you do understand that your experience with God might not be fully synced up with what the Bible says about who God is. And we have to be okay with that. And so your experience, there, there might be 50 reasons why there's something going on in your life that you've prayed for God to take away. I don't understand it either. But I, I promise you, if you had the power to answer prayers like God has, and if you had all knowledge into all aspects of your life, you would answer your prayers the same way God is answering your prayers. You like somehow, if you have this idea, like if I was in charge, I wouldn't do, I would do it differently. Hear me, that's gross. <laughs> you are worshiping something other than Jesus. So there's this huge hole in the message today, because maybe the Lord wants to, to talk to you about something. What is the thing that is stopping you from going all the way? Is it just distrust? Is it maybe I don't really believe the story? I don't know if I can trust the Bible. What are, what are the things? I'm, listen, I'm not going to solve them here today. I, I just need you to hear from the Lord and take those things to God and ask him to help you. So let's pause for a moment. When you have the answer, just ding your bell. We'll move on. That's okay. I don't know what it is. I feel no pressure at all. It's fine by me. I'll close with this idea. And um, we're going to go back into a time of worship um, and give you an opportunity to give them everything. You got five more minutes. You can give them five more minutes, yeah? Or not. So anyway, so in 1953, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary along with his guide slash, slash Sherpa, um, made it to the top of Mount Everest. You guys know the story, 1953? They are the first people ever to be confirmed to have reached the summit of Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the earth. Many people have gotten close. Many people have gotten close. Some of them even got within 200 feet of the summit, but there's this outcropping of rocks. This, the last little bit, the last leg, if you will, of getting to the top, um, was so difficult and people oftentimes can't traverse that. They either run out of canned oxygen or they run out of energy or they just give up altogether. But Hillary, along with his Sherpa, they made it past this outcropping of rocks and got to the top where Hillary, it has been reported to us historically that he had a cross with him, symbolic of Jesus Christ, right? And he takes that cross and he places it on the, top, the highest mountain in the world as if somehow he just brought Jesus to the top. I'm thinking, bro's been there forever. You know what I mean? He's already been there, I'm just saying. 
But it was just sort of a moment, and he wasn't a Christian. Somebody gave him the cross. I'm not even sure why he did it, but he sets this cross up there. It's just symbolic, I think. But this last little outcropping of rocks has become known as the Hillary Step. And it has stopped so many people from getting to the top of the mountain. So many people get all the way there and just can't get past this last difficult place. In fact, other people come up the mountain from a different direction instead of going his way because this is so difficult. Well, in 2015, there was an earthquake in Nepal and it shook Mount Everest. And um, satellite images show, and I think people have gone up to, to prove this to be true, but that, that rock formation that's called Hillary Step that is so difficult has shifted and moved. And now the, um, the people that were had to be experts to get up it before. And now it's made much easier because this rock has moved and it's easier to traverse. Is it, you guys picking up what I'm putting down here? So all that to say, when I read that story this last week, it made me think of Jesus' death on the cross, which I know sounds strange to you. But you have to, you have to hear this. When Jesus was on the cross and when he breathed his last and said these words, it is finished, um, one of the gospels, and I didn't look it up, so forgive me, but one of the gospels says this, that there was an earthquake. And in the, during this earthquake, the ground began to shake and the people began to notice something. Some people went to the temple and they went into this, this little special section of the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies. And it's the place where God's presence dwelled. And no one was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, but the high priest and only the high priest could go in there once a year on the, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, where he would go in and offer incense and sacrifice to God. And they would tie a rope around the high priest's waist because sometimes it was thought that if a person went before God in an unholy state, like if the sacrifice wasn't taken um, seriously enough, if the high priest walked into the presence of God, he would be struck dead and fall to the ground and they would have to pull him out by the rope. This would be a drag, wouldn't you agree? Come on, I worked on that all week. That's a good one. Um, the earthquake takes place. Uh, somebody runs into the temple. They look in the Holy of Holies and this curtain, this veil that had been separating God's holy presence from everyone else had been ripped in two. And it had been ripped in two from top to bottom, which is just a great story, right? All that to say, the work that Jesus has done in that earthquake moment, if you will, that the veil has been torn and that God's spirit is available to all. In fact, Jesus says these words after his resurrection, he's going back up to heaven to be with the father. And he says these words to his disciples. It's a good thing that I go away from you because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is no longer gonna be bound behind a curtain. He's no longer gonna be ministered to by incense and, and sacrificed animals. That he's gonna be worshiped by us, that the Spirit of God is gonna dwell inside of us and God is gonna use his spirit to worship the father and Jesus Christ, his son, amen. I mean, this is heavy stuff, guys, heavy stuff. But we move forward in worship because of that work. And all God is asking for is us. It's all he wants. It's all he ever wanted. That's why he came to the mountain on Sinai, at Sinai and told Moses, go tell them I can have anything in the world and I want you. God wants us. We have to make the choice to follow him. Let's pray together. 
Lord, I thank you for our time of worship. I thank you that we can worship in spirit and truth. And Lord, whatever that is to us, Lord, we need to have a much more uh, marked experience of that. We need to understand more what you mean by that. And so we're asking God that you would help us to understand what it means to worship in spirit and truth. God, what are the things that we're refusing to give to you? What are the hindrances that we have in our life? God, the, over the next five minutes, I pray that we would just like let them come to our mind and that we might even say them out loud under our breath so nobody can hear them. But we offer these hindrances to you, Lord. We don't want to be stopped. If you're asking for us, Lord, we want you back. We want you to, and we need you to help us get there. So. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We thank you as we celebrated communion today for all of your work that you've done for us. God, you are not finished with us. Would you say that? God, you're not finished with me. I'll say it again. Would you say, God, you're not finished with me. He's not finished with you. He's not, oh my goodness. And there's so much goodness and greatness that he has for all of us here and he's drawn us in. And I'm just asking for the next few moments that we would just stand and we would worship him in spirit and truth. Just give it to him, amen? Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.